Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony. Welcome back to episode number 35 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. We're going to conclude our conversation about Article 1, Section 3 in the Michigan Constitution. Now, last time we got together, we started talking about the Anderson case. That's those three pillars that a judge is going to have to discuss with a with a criminal defendant on whether or not to allow this individual to represent himself at trial. That was a watershed case, and, and we're going to add an additional case that is considered to be a watershed case uh, because it really pulls the Anderson case forward in time, adds on a little extra protection for both the judge as well as the defendant. But uh, before I talk about that, obviously, let's give you your spoonful of legalese. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice... You would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their lawyer referral service program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matters. The People v. Adkins, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1996. I like this case because it adds to our previous watershed Anderson court opinion. This time, they're adding an additional layer of protection to both the trial court judge and the defendant seeking to represent himself at trial. And it has to do with Michigan court rules. Sidebar. I think the best way to help describe court rules is think about them much like you would if you wanted to learn how to play a board game like Clue, Monopoly, or Chess. To properly know how to play those games, you have to learn what can and cannot be done during gameplay. The court rules are essentially the same thing. I once heard a judge lecture a group of newly licensed attorneys that he will order his bailiff to take away any book, magazine, or newspaper he might see an attorney reading while in the courtroom. This particular judge's philosophy is that a courtroom is sacrosanct, and those arguing their cases within the courtroom deserve the utmost respect and attention. So he would not allow attorneys to read while they were awaiting their own individual cases to be called. However, he admittedly said 
that his only exception to this rule was if the attorney were to show his bailiff that he was reading a book called the Michigan Court Rules. And that book, this judge believed, was a Bible for attorneys to read, reread, and read again. This judge believed it was both critical and imperative that attorneys know court rules inside and out, backwards and forwards. Why? Because the Michigan court rules teach you the ins and outs of what you need to know or what needs to be done as an attorney when in a courtroom. Look, I'll be the first to tell you, law schools, they don't teach you about 97% of the things you need to know to be even minimally competent as an attorney. But the Michigan court rules, they'll help you get there. But ultimately, I'm digressing. This case is just a little different than the other cases insofar as our defendant Atkins here didn't want to retain his attorney that he had hired to represent him during his trial for a criminal sexual conduct or, or, or unarmed robbery. Again, so one more time, he'd hired an attorney, but ultimately didn't want him. The trial judge told defendant Adkins that Adkins either could represent himself at trial and keep his retained attorney next to him for assistance as needed, or he had to just keep his retained attorney and let the attorney do his attorney job. Mr. Adkins said he didn't want either of those options. He wanted the judge to court appoint him an attorney at the trial. The judge refused to do that, so defendant Adkins ended up representing himself. But before allowing Adkins to begin the trial, the judge went through the three-pronged approach that we learned from Anderson to make sure that our defendant Atkins here understood what he was doing. Now, as you can guess, defendant Atkins was found guilty on both charges and Atkins appealed his case saying he never wanted to represent himself. He was only given two choices, neither of which were his preferred opinion or option. As you can guess, Defendant Adkins is found guilty on both charges, and Adkins appealed his case saying he never wanted to represent himself. He was only given two choices, neither of which were his preferred options. Eh, too bad, so sad, said our Michigan Supreme Court. They start their ruling by saying trial courts must substantially comply with the Anderson three-pronged discussion with our defendant. But they also introduced the Michigan court rule, which was created by the court system to better effectuate the day-to-day -day activities of judges, attorneys, court clerks, and litigants. Michigan court rule 6.005D reads as follows. Appointment or waiver of a lawyer. The court may not permit the defendant to make an initial waiver of the right to be represented by a lawyer without first, one, advising the defendant of the charge, the maximum possible prison sentence for the offense, and any mandatory minimum sentence required by law, and the risk involved in self-representation, and two, offering the defendant the opportunity to consult with a retained lawyer, or, if the defendant is indigent, the opportunity to consult with an appointed lawyer. The justices opine that substantial compliance requires the court to discuss with the defendant the waiver of counsel requirements set forth in both the Anderson case and this court rule that we're talking about. The goal of the judge is to ensure the defendant fully understands, recognizes, and agrees to abide by these procedures. 
The Michigan Supreme said that a defendant must exhibit an intentional abandonment of the right to counsel and the court should indulge every reasonable presumption against a waiver of that right to counsel. In short, our, 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 our Michigan Supreme Court said that if a judge does not believe the record evidences a proper waiver, that the judge should note these reasons for his belief and he should require the attorney to continue representing the defendant. The idea here being, if ever in doubt, let the attorney continue to represent the defendant at trial. So what are we really saying? Well, look, whatever you might think about most lawyers' character, they are schooled and skilled at the law and know how best to present a case at trial. Defendants, regardless of their level of schooling, they don't have the same skill set and the knowledge base to appropriately represent themselves at trial. But here's the rub. You have a constitutional right to have an attorney, but you also have a constitutional right to represent yourself. What does a judge do when a defendant wants to give up one constitutional right, that is, you know, the right to an attorney, in exchange for another constitutional right, in this instance, the right to self-representation? And that's the quandary every judge is in when the defendant wants to fire his or her attorney. Therefore, our state's highest court is proclaiming a judge must make sure the defendant absolutely, undoubtedly wants to forego an attorney in exchange for self-representation. But now the Michigan Supreme Court is adding in this Michigan Court Rule 6.005D because this rule informs a defendant of the risks of self-representation. The rule, our state Supreme Court notes, requires the court to offer the assistance of an attorney and to advise the defendant about the possible punishment for the charged offense. Consider this an additional layer of protection for the entire criminal justice process. After all, we don't want convictions overturned at the appellate level. If we go through the cost, the expense, and the time of a trial, we want it to be done and over with. This additional requirement of a judge reviewing the Michigan Court Rule 6.005D with a defendant, it adds in an additional blanket of confidence by the judge that the defendant knows what he's doing. Our Michigan Supreme Court said that application of the waiver of counsel is the duty of the trial judge, and that is a weighty responsibility. In conclusion, the Michigan Supreme Court justices held that trial courts must substantially comply with the aforementioned substantive requirements set forth in both the Anderson case and our Michigan court rule. Now, to be very clear, substantial compliance requires that the court discuss the substance of this case and the rule with the defendant in a short conversation. The judge must make an express finding that the defendant fully understands, recognizes, and agrees to abide by the waiver of counsel. But to be clear, if the judge is uncertain regarding whether any of the waiver procedures are met, he should deny the defendant's request to proceed in pro per, noting the reason for the denial on the record. The defendant should then continue to be represented by retained or appointed counsel,
Next case, People versus Fett, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 2003. Now, I'm only going to briefly touch on this case because it deals with a criminal defendant who wanted to have two attorneys representing him at the same time. Now, this in and of itself is not problematic. I mean, think about the rich celebrities who have a gaggle of attorneys sitting next to him or her during their trial. I'm thinking about OJ. I'm thinking about Martha Stewart. Hell, even Aunt Becky from Full House. Look, you get the idea. You can have more than one attorney representing you in a, in, in a court case. But this criminal defendant wanted both a local attorney, meaning, you know, an, a, an attorney licensed here in the state of Michigan, but also wanted an out-of-state attorney to be admitted pro hoc vice. Sidebar. Pro hoc vice is a legal term for adding an attorney to a case in a state in which the attorney is not licensed to practice. However, if granted this pro hoc vice status, the attorney may practice in a state where he does not hold a bar license for that case exclusively, and if admitted under pro hoc vice, even though the attorney doesn't have a license to practice in the state of Michigan, they're not going to be considered to be committing the unauthorized practice of law because they've got this pro hoc vice status. Do remember, listeners, Attorneys are only allowed to practice law in states in which they hold a validly issued license. And that's what's going on here. So defendant Fett wanted to bring an out-of-state, in this case Ohio, an Ohio attorney who was not licensed in the state of Michigan to assist her Michigan attorney in a drunk driving criminal case. But the judge refused it. The judge believed that this case was too simplistic a crime to warrant an out-of-state attorney needing to be brought in to act as co-counsel under pro hoc vice status. When defendant Fett is ultimately convicted of, of her drunk driving case, she appealed her, her the trial judge's decision to not allow her attorney to come in and, and, and co-counsel the, the criminal defense. And Fett argued that she had a right to a legal representation that she wanted and that prohibiting her from having both attorneys, this, this Michigan licensed attorney as well as the out-of-state attorney, that that was a violation of her Article 1, Section 13 right, which is the right to have an attorney for your trial. Bull honky, said the Michigan Supreme Court. They said that this defendant cites no authority holding that the right to effective assistance of counsel is violated when a defendant is not allowed to have an additional attorney that she may choose. So maybe said another way, this defendant already had one attorney that she wanted, that Michigan attorney that she had hired to represent her. So to be clear, she not only had an attorney, she had an attorney that she handpicked. So for a trial court judge to deny the request of a second attorney to co-chair the trial, particularly an out-of-state attorney, that does not violate the Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 13 provision to be represented by counsel. She was represented by a Michigan attorney that she hired. She just wasn't allowed to hire on a second attorney who was from out-of-state. And for that reason, the Michigan Supreme Court upheld the trial judge's decision against defendant Fett. I'm next going to discuss People versus Russell, 
a Michigan Supreme Court case from 2004, not so much because of the court's majority decision per se, as much as I want to discuss the court's dissent. Now, I'll be the very first to concede. It's a rarity I ever discuss a court's dissent. And that's really because it doesn't hold any precedential value to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution's assorted provisions. But in this instance, the court opinion was 10 pages long. Three of those 10 pages consisted of the majority decision. The other seven pages are the dissent. And it's the dissent which I found to hold some crucial information regarding Article 1, Section 13. So here's the fact pattern in this case. Defendant Russell was charged with possession with intent to deliver less than 50 grams of both cocaine and heroin. At the beginning of trial, defendant informed the trial court that he wanted his trial court attorney removed and a new trial attorney appointed. The trial court did not grant defendant Russell his request, but noted that he would entertain the request if the defendant presented more valid reasons to appoint a substitute counsel other than just mere personality conflicts between the defendant and his attorney. Well, defendant Russell never offered any type of explanation, so the judge offered Russell the following four options. One, defendant Russell could hire a new attorney at his own expense. Option two, defendant Russell could keep his current court-appointed attorney, an attorney which, by the way, was actually the second court-appointed attorney as Russell didn't like and replaced the first court-appointed attorney. So, Option number one, hire your own attorney at your own expense. Option number two, keep the attorney that you've got because, quite frankly, this is already your second court-appointed attorney. Option number three, defendant Russell could represent himself at trial. And last option, option number four, defendant Russell could represent himself, but his current court-appointed attorney could provide assistance as needed if defendant Russell asked for assistance. Defendant Russell said he wanted none of those options, that he wanted a third attorney appointed to him. The judge refused and said those four options were the options from which he had to choose and no other court-appointed attorney would be provided. When Russell again refused to pick any one of those four options, the judge impaneled the jury and asked defendant if he had any questions for the jury. Mr. Russell said the following to the jury. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is something totally new for me. I'm being forced into this situation. I requested the court appoint new counsel for me, and they said, for some reason being, that we're here and they don't see the difference. Any differences between me and my trial attorney. So they forced me to go on with this trial alone by myself. After a four-day trial, defendant Russell was convicted. The Michigan Supreme Court ultimately rules Mr. Russell unequivocally rejected the idea of self-representation and did not voluntarily waive his right to assistance of counsel at trial. For that reason, it was error for the trial court to force defendant to proceed in pro per without any attorney. As such, the court's majority issued an automatic reversal of his conviction and required a new trial to proceed with a new attorney. But two of the seven Michigan Supreme Court justices vehemently disagreed with the other five justices who comprised the majority. Two justices went on to craft a seven-page dissent, 
And because that's two and a half times the length of the majority opinion, I wanted to review their reasons for so fiercely opposing the majority's decision. The dissenting justices believed that Mr. Russell, by his conduct alone, unequivocally waived his constitutional right to a trial attorney. These two justices agree that the operation of the presumption against a waiver of trial counsel is a legitimate concern and one that must be taken seriously. But they didn't think that this was a problem here in our case. They opined the defendant unreasonably refused to cooperate with his second court-appointed attorney, but at the same time, he also declined the opportunity to represent himself. They noted that in some federal courts, this type of conduct by a defendant constitutes an effective waiver of the right to an attorney. Simply put, the defendant can't say he doesn't want his attorney, but then also say, I'm not going to represent myself. As we've noted in previous cases, a defendant has the right to a court-appointed attorney, not the court-appointed attorney he wants to hand-select. The two dissenters went on to say, when a defendant unreasonably declines appointed counsel's legal services, the presumption against a waiver of counsel must fail. The right to trial counsel, along with the right to self-representation and prohibition against forcing trial counsel on an unwilling defendant, all intersect together, especially in this case at hand. The two justices noted that if the defendant had been required to retain his attorney, which is what the majority opinion believes should have happened, well then defendant Russell would almost certainly have argued his right to trial counsel had been violated and that such counsel had been forced upon him against his wishes. But what the dissenting justices note is that defendant Russell is arguing the trial court abused its discretion when it declined his request to appoint him a third attorney, thereby forcing him to represent himself. They point out defendant Russell contends because he did not expressly waive his right to counsel that it was invalid for the judge to require him to defend himself. But these two justices point out a waiver of defendant's right to trial counsel must be unequivocal by the Anderson standard, and that means a waiver must be clear, plain, and capable of being understood in only one way, that being clearly demonstrated. These two dissenting justices did not accept the standard proposed by the defendant and ultimately implied by the majority court's decision that only a verbal waiver can sufficiently constitute an unequivocal waiver, right? They're saying, we do not believe a verbal waiver is the only way you can learn that the defendant is unequivocally waiving their right to an attorney. To the contrary, they pointed out the four options presented to Mr. Russell by the trial judge. They believed Mr. Russell clearly rejected three of those four options. They found that by a matter of logic, if he refused to hire an attorney, which if you'll remember was option number one, and if he refused to keep his current attorney, which was option number two, and he refused to represent himself with the aid of his attorney, which was option number four, then the only option left for Mr. Russell was to accept option number three, the self-representation option. These two justices reiterated that no defendant is entitled to the appointed attorney of his choice, a phrase even used by the court's majority opinion. 
Therefore, these two justices wrote that defendant Russell was properly limited by the trial court judge to the four options that were given to him, and he clearly rejected three out of those four options. But they also took to task the majority decision to require the defendant under these types of circumstances to expressly agree to self-representation, meaning they don't think that it's right that the, the defendant has to literally say, yes, I agree to representing myself. These two justices don't think you need to go that extreme. They note that making a defendant verbally agree to self-representation only ensures a defendant will cause these sorts of quandaries in the future. They think a no decision response from a defendant, which is essentially what this guy did, right? When he just said, I'm not picking any of your four, that is a no decision response. When you allow a defendant to just say, I'm not going to make a decision on any of the options that you're giving me, well, then it's either going to ensure future conflicts over whether or not the defendant legitimately waived his right to counsel or will result in a judge constantly being forced to appoint a new attorney whenever the defendant wants to delay his upcoming trial. They believe this undermines the administration of justice by encouraging gamesmanship in the courtroom by criminal defendants, thus giving a proverbial golden parachute to the defendant to appeal for violations of his Article 1, Section 13 rights. Now, in our case at hand, the dissenting justices found that by his actions alone, Mr. Russell unequivocally waived his right to an attorney. Given Russell's knowledge that the trial court was unprepared to appoint new counsel and defendant's clear rejection of three of the four options offered to him by the trial judge, it's circumstances like these where a verbal statement to assent or to agree is not necessary. They believe that the actions of the defendant speak louder than any words ever could. They note that the trial court repeatedly warned Mr. Russell that if his court-appointed attorney were relieved of his legal duties, a new trial attorney would not be appointed. And the trial judge gave defendant Russell numerous opportunities, including two separate recesses, to consult with his attorney regarding the four options available to him. These two justices believed it was very clear the defendant was provided sufficient information to make a decision with his eyes wide open. Therefore, they would hold that the trial court did not err in finding defendant Russell knowingly and intelligently waived his right to an attorney when he repeatedly informed the court he no longer wanted his court-appointed attorney to represent him. The dissenting justices concluded their seven-page opinion by saying, The determination of whether there has been an intelligent waiver of the right to counsel must depend upon the particular facts and circumstances surrounding the case, including the conduct of the defendant. And under these circumstances, and based upon this defendant's conduct, he intentionally relinquished and abandoned his right to a trial counsel when he unequivocally refused to accept any of the other three options that had been provided to him by the trial judge. And finally, our last case. People versus Willing, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 2005, once again, and should not surprise you, 
is about a fellow who had his court-appointed attorney taken away from him. But this time it was done before trial. So the Michigan Court of Appeals had to decide what happens if a defendant does not have an attorney at hearings which take place prior to trials. And remember, hearings that take place prior to a trial are still considered to be critical stages of the overall criminal defense process. So he doesn't have an attorney at these hearings prior to trial. And here's the fact pattern as it relates to the case. An undercover officer with the Royal Oak Police Department learned from a confidential informant that the informant and defendant Willing had discussed selling drugs while they were incarcerated together. The undercover cop ends up buying drugs from defendant Willing, arrests Mr. Willing, and charges Willing with conspiracy to deliver cocaine. Before trial, defendant Willing did have an attorney, that he had hired, actually, and this attorney had filed some preliminary motions trying to get certain things excluded from trial. However, before the hearings on these motions could take place, the prosecutor made a motion to have the attorney the defendant Willing had hired be disqualified as defendant Willing's attorney because this attorney had represented the confidential informant on a previous drug charge in the past. And the court agreed with it and said that it would indeed be a conflict of interest for this attorney who has previously uh, represented the informant in the past to now represent Mr. Willing, because effectively what that means is the confidential informant will now be uh, uh, an opponent of Mr. Willing and, and to whom is the attorney going to have allegiance to his previous client or his current client. So because of that, court says, all right. I'm going to relieve this uh, hired attorney, and I'm instead going to appoint an attorney to defendant Willing. And as you can guess, defendant Willing didn't want this new attorney to represent him or argue the motions to suppress the evidence. But the judge didn't care. The judge told the defendant his newly appointed attorney was a smart and competent attorney and would zealously represent his best interests in these motions and at trial. Defendant Willing still rejected the appointment of the attorney. So, against the defendant's wishes, the judge made the court-appointed attorney sit next to Defendant Willing during the motions to suppress, but Defendant Willing represented himself during said hearing in pro per. The judge found that the evidence should be allowed to be introduced at trial. He did not suppress the evidence, and thus it resulted in this particular appeal to the Court of Appeals. At the Court of Appeals level, Defendant Willing's argument was that he never waived his right to counsel for those pretrial hearings. Instead, he requested to retain his own attorney or have a new attorney appointed for him. But the judge denied both of those requests. Defendant Willing argued he did not waive his right to counsel until after a jury was selected for the actual trial itself. But before this point, he had always wanted to have an attorney represent him, especially in those crucial hearings to determine the suppression of evidence. And the Court of Appeal sides with Defendant Willing. They start off their opinion by declaring that Mr. Willing never expressed the desire to represent himself or to waive his right to counsel before the trial. Although Mr. Willing's attorney stated his client wanted to represent himself, 
The only thing Mr. Willing actually said on the subject was that he would either like to retain an attorney or be granted a new court-appointed attorney. Now, referring back to our previous case that we just talked about, People v. Russell, this Court of Appeals said that the Russell Court determined that a defendant's purported waiver of counsel was not unequivocal when a defendant clearly sought appointment of another attorney. The Court of Appeals here in our case notes that it was clear Mr. Willing sought either appointment of a new attorney or to be allowed an opportunity to hire his own lawyer. But remember, in the Russell case, Defendant Russell unequivocally rejected the idea of representing himself, whereas here in our case, Mr. Willing only decided to represent himself by choice at trial. So the Court of Appeals isn't totally ready to side yet. They do. They do side with Defendant Willing, but they're not willing to do it just yet based on our Russell case alone. So what do they do? They go back to our beloved Atkins case that we talked about at the top of this podcast. They determine, based on similar facts to the Atkins case, that our defendant here never directly told the judge he did not want an attorney, but instead wanted to represent himself during the pretrial hearings. Because Mr. Willing did not expressly and unequivocally reject having an attorney at his pretrial hearings, and because pretrial hearings are crucial stages of a criminal case, Mr. Willing should have had an opportunity to either hire an attorney of his own choosing or get a new court-appointed attorney. So, the Michigan Court of Appeals overturns Mr. Willing's conviction based on the fact he never rejected having an attorney and never directly told the trial judge he wanted to represent himself during those pretrial motions. All right, listen, gang, that's it. These are the major cases within the state of Michigan that have addressed how we allow an individual to exercise their constitutional right to either having an attorney, getting an attorney appointed to them, hiring an attorney, or alternatively representing themselves in pro per in trials. And they certainly can do that if they so choose, but they're going to have to work through the three-prong Anderson case. They're going to have to work through that uh, court rule 6.005D and assuming that the judge believes that there's an unequivocal relinquishment of that, well, waiver, let's say, to the right of counsel, only then can an individual represent themselves. And with that, we're going to close out episode 35 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. Please reach out to me at Tony Snyder on Twitter or TonySnyder.com. I'll talk to you next time. The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.